I'm Priska, and you're listening to The Two Horny Goats. Well, as you can hear, it is just me today. Um, so I think you heard Roxy's solo episode about a week ago, and now it is me doing my solo episode, and I'm so happy to be hanging with you. Um, you know, I, I've been kind of like nerve wracked about doing this episode because it's super different doing it by myself. I miss Roxy very much, but don't worry. She's coming over later today. We're going to record some more episodes. Um, so I won't be alone forever. Um, but today I did want to talk to you all about my sexual education in the church. Um, before that though, how are you doing? I think there's obviously just a lot of heaviness in the world. I myself have definitely been struggling with more just depressive episodes. I was talking to a friend of mine. Her name is Alyssa. We were at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. And we were just talking about how sometimes these depressive episodes come and just bite you. And there's no like, there's no necessarily warning. Um, There's not always meaning to it. I think it's just Maybe even having this pandemic, this pause in our lives, this collective um, breath holding has kind of allowed us to see into ourselves a little bit more. And I think I think the fact that we are experiencing these depressive episodes maybe more often is also a piece of awareness and a piece of permission to ourselves to have these moments where we're not feeling all together, where we're kind of feeling ah, just kind of undone a lot of times. And so I've been having a lot of those just sit on the couch moments. And, you know, Roxy talked about burnout last week. And I I think that I'm definitely experiencing an extended burnout period where I kind of rest for a weekend or so or rest for a full afternoon. And then I'm like, cool, I'm, I should be ready to go. I should be raring to go. I should now completely undo this unproductive aspect of my life and move right into being productive again. But that's just not how it's been. I think I, once I'm rested up a little bit, I overdo it and overcompensate and overexert myself to the point of a different type of exhaustion. And then I get mad at myself for not being productive enough. And then I push myself to try to be more productive. And then I end up just laying in a pool of my own sweat, unable to get up. And it is not a fun feeling. So I think that's definitely something I'm starting to really focus on and work on is just to try to have a very sustainable, realistic, loving relationship with work, um, with productivity. And I'm struggling with that. I don't know if that's something you're going through. Um, or something that you see in your life, but it's, it's genuinely really challenging for me. And so if you're struggling with that, please write to us, you know, the email it's hello at twohornygoats.com. Thanks so much for listening today. It's hard to quantify how much it means to Roxy and I, um, just the fact that you're continuing to journey with us. And even in these solo episodes, you know, I think, They really give a little insight into who we are as individuals, what preoccupies us, what kind of aspect of our personality is driving the chemistry between Roxy and I, which I think is pretty special. She is someone that brings out a side of myself that otherwise is really difficult to coax out. Um, For many years, 
I felt, especially, you know, being a singer songwriter, I felt that it was better for me to leave a lot of either my political views or worldviews or life philosophy kind of tucked away. Um, it's kind of like, well, I make the songs that I make, but it doesn't necessarily, like you can infer what you want to from it, but it doesn't, I'm not necessarily standing up for something or speaking out on something. There, there was something I felt I needed to keep locked away. And I, I see, you know, where young Priscilla was coming from. Um, I wanted anyone to be able to kind of approach and, um, intake the art that I was making. But now having done this podcast with Roxy for, you know, almost two years. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, our little baby is like a toddler, but having done that for almost two years, there's something about it that has unlocked in me this ability to say what's really on my mind. And before that was really racked with fear and anxiety. But I think through doing this podcast together, um, we've helped really solidify and form what our actual viewpoints are. And so I just want to thank you all for that. We would be nothing without your being on the other side of this. And we love you very, very much. So anyway, I want to get into the topic of today. As many of you know, I am a pastor's kid and, you know, my dad is a pastor and my mom was basically our youth pastor. And to this day, they are heavily, heavily involved in ministry. And what does this look like? I think a day in the life of a pastor's kid or a week in the life of a pastor's kid more so was Sunday, obviously church. Um, Mondays were, I think, generally pretty chill um, in terms of pastoral work. And then Tuesday nights would be prayer meetings. Wednesday night would sometimes either be some sort of Bible study gathering or my parents would go visit people. Thursday was very similar. Friday was the big gathering at our church, which was uh, Bible studies and, and, and prayer groups together and worship and all of that kind of a big deal. Saturday mornings were kind of leadership meetings. And then Sunday was an all day marathon extravaganza. If you were a PK, I feel you really hard because we would wake up. Um, I don't know if anyone else's parents made them do this, but when I was five or six years old, my mom had me call through the church kind of catalog and call people and say, wake up for Jesus. And if you have a five or six year old asking you if you're going to come to church today, I think it was just great, you know, just sales marketing um, from my mom. But I memorized a lot of church members' phone numbers because I was doing that on a weekly basis, literally calling people and asking them if they were going to come to church that day. And so this is kind of the background I'm coming from. Um, of just wall to wall church. And on top of that, from preschool until eighth grade, I actually attended Christian schools. Uh, so when I was young, up until third grade or so, I was at Living Way Christian Academy. Uh, when I was younger than that, actually, I went to a Christian nursery school where they would, you know, sing church nursery rhymes and church um, worship songs to basically zero to four or five year olds. And you know, my entire worldview was shaped around this. And I cannot express to you enough how complete this worldview was for me. On top of that, I think America was at a different kind of political religious landscape than it is now. I think it was very much so, at least from my perspective, uh, more so assumed that we were a Christian country. 
Um, I remember prayers at the flagpoles being a bigger thing. I remember George W. Bush, like having, um, calling for a national day of prayer. Um, a lot more of the sex ed that was available at the time and prior, um, was kind of focused around this idea that you should be married before having sex. So I I think that not only was the world and the country in a slightly more conservative, different place than it is today. um, And by that, I mean, like less aware, less inclusive, less open and much more restrictive. Um, So I definitely grew up in that America, but also in my church schooling system and then in my small Chinese Christian church, a CCC, if you will. So that's kind of my background. And I think even being younger and having cousins that were less so kind of raised in this very dense church upbringing, um, they would kind of look at me and almost be concerned with how sheltered my sisters and I were. And I remember I had older cousins that would come to church once in a while, not every week, um, which God, we would pray for them to come every week, but they would come and on the ride from the church back to my house for dinner after church or whatever, um, I had this cousin and she would literally blast boys to men. And she would tell us like, these are songs that you need to know um, because we were just not exposed to what we called then secular music, secular TV shows. Um, We only watched Christian programming. I watched TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network. You know, my idea of a good time on a Friday night after church was to watch healing Crusades with Benny Hinn and and um, Susan G. Komen. And these were like my celebrities, you know, but I found that it made it really difficult to even relate to other students at my Christian schools because I didn't know it then, but we were so my mom was so intent on us um, being protected from the outside world and living this very, I guess, pure and untouched life because I think she thought that that was going to bless us the most in life as a Christian. So I would say that, and I can't say for sure, but I would say that my upbringing was even more sheltered than a lot of other pastors, kids, or people just going to the church. And I joke sometimes that, you know, it was almost like being Mennonite or Amish only because we were so isolated from so many things. And I'm actually, honestly, I'm honestly surprised reflecting back on it that I was able to remove myself from this mindset because it's so concentrated and so powerful. And honestly, it's, it's kind of been like, it was like the gravity in my life. It was the things that made everything else made, make sense. Everything revolved around Christianity and the logic around Christianity and salvation and whether or not God was, pleased with you or if you were doing things for his glory or not, like that ruled my entire existence. And so that's why I wanted to talk about sex ed today, because if I was just to talk about Christianity, I could probably spin off into a lot of different tangents, some of them good, some of them confusing, and some of them maybe not needed or intended for anybody else, you know? But I think this topic of sex in the church is interesting because I think it's easy for me to feel like, well, I have gone on this sexual awakening journey. And so it's almost like as if in my head, this kind of teaching doesn't exist anymore. 
but that's not true. It just doesn't exist in my reality. Um, but it definitely still is happening. And for me, it already feels so, I guess, archaic in my own narrative. But I also still respect the fact that people feel this way. I just also feel the way that certain Bible verses are used to kind of control women and to kind of shame both men and women in regards to sex is overblown and incorrect. Um, And to be honest, I'm not having a theological discussion today. I'm not a theologian, but I'm just going to share my experience with it. And I think this kind of came up because, you know, I've got this nephew who's on the precipice of becoming a young adult. He's 13. You know, he's going through all the things. His voice is dropped. He's going through puberty. He's got he's having crushes. And I was talking with my sister-in-law and there was this moment where it was like, how do we actually deal with this? Because, you know, she's also a a pastor's kid because Abe is a pastor's kid. Um, And and we don't want to raise our the future generation having all of these sexual hangups that we did and and being forced into these very confined boxes. However, it's hard to know exactly what to say. It's hard to to know where to take a stand, how to have subtlety and just how to have things not be so black and white. But if things are not so black and white, it means that you as a parent or guardian or, you know, figure in in a, in a young person's life, it means that you have to navigate the gray for yourself, because if you're unaware, then you're not going to be helpful to them in any way. You know, and I was like, well, what the fuck? Like, what is right? You know, I've talked to parents who, you know, they they were saying, yeah, I'd rather my kids have sex within my household, because that way I know that one, they're being safe and two, that they're not um, that they know that we love them and are open with whatever lifestyle they choose. Um, for me growing up the way that I did, wow, that is so open and so progressive. And I think in a way so beautiful, but also I don't know if that's something I'll be comfortable with if I have a 15, 16 year old child in the future. So anyway, that's kind of how this topic came up. Just this idea that I'm still wrestling with so many things about my past and that sexual education may be also relevant in my future in terms of how I want to talk to my nephews and niece about it, how I want to talk to my future kids about it. It's it's making me confront a lot of things that I had issues with. So let's talk about sex ed in the church. And I'm going to start with my little school. I went to San Gabriel Christian School, tiny, tiny little school. You know, we wore uniforms. We pledged allegiance to both the American flag and the Christian flag every morning. This included Bible class. So, you know, if you had biology, if you had math, then we also had Bible class. Teachers would pray at the start of every day. We had a lot of prayer at the flagpoles. It was just like this very pretty conservative Christian church. So I remember sex ed was basically, you know, uh, it was a movie that they showed us. um, And I think it was actually pretty comprehensive in terms of the biology. I remember them teaching us the terminology for ovaries, for vagina. Actually, I don't know that they actually said vagina, but it was on the diagram. Um, And they talked us through our period and menstruation. Um, They even mentioned that the penis um, was uh, soft and spongy, I believe was the vernacular that's always stuck with me because spongy, really? I 
you know, your mileage may vary, but that's not necessarily a term that I would use. Um, but sure, spongy. And, you know, they talked about the testes and they talked about sperm and they talked about how a sperm could fertilize an egg. And, you know, it talks about basically what that fertilization fertilization looks like. Um, but one thing that they skipped over is the actual sex portion. And I don't know if this is just a Christian school thing. I've watched some sex ed tapes from the 50s and a lot of them were similar to what um, I consumed. But there was almost no mention of intercourse in any way. There was no I mean, I don't think it needs to be overly explicit, but I think it's important for young people coming of age, having these urges, having, you know, little boners and little like wet lady puddles on their chairs, you know, whatever it is, it's kind of important to know the mechanics of sex. So that was completely left out. And I find that really interesting because I think as a kid, I remember it was like a projector slide thing. Like one of, I don't know if you've seen these, but it's like a circular projector and the teacher's kind of holding a clicker. And every time she clicks it, the whole slide projection goes and turns and you, you see a new either like image or slide or whatever it is. And it was set to like a cassette tape basically. And so, wow, this felt like I grew up in the seventies, but I swear to you, this was the late nineties or it might've been early two thousands. And that's how I got my primary sex education, like formal sex education. And I remember walking out of there thinking like someone had taken out the middle of a movie. Like if you were watching, I don't know, the Avengers and they cut out like the major battle scene, like you would walk out of the Avengers being like, wait, so I get that they killed Thanos, but I have no idea like how the fuck they did it. You know, Um, I understand, you know, the conclusion of the movie, but I have no fucking idea what happened. That's how I felt walking out of there. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who felt that way. What I realized is like, even though you're 12, 13, 14 years old, like, you know, when there are breaks in logic. And in fact, those gaps are filled by your mind, by your imagination automatically, whether it's correct or not. It really makes me realize how important it is to have comprehensive sex education. Aside from that, I grew up in the age of true love weights. And I know a lot of you out there just completely shuddered with your whole body because true love weights and I kiss dating goodbye. These were kind of calls for abstinence. It was a beautiful, uh, not beautiful in and of itself, but they did a good job creating this end to end marketing campaign for abstinence. These were huge in the 90s. I think these were huge. Um, And I think it made you feel that you were a part of something cool. You were a part of a club. And it also made you feel that you had some sort of control over um, that you were opting for abstinence. Um, and I think the ugly side of that is that if you slipped up, quote unquote, slipped up and, and you did have sex or you did engage in sexual activity, that you would be so much so like ri- ridiculed in that same community. That's kind of what's not being seen. Like you're looking, you're doing these. Oh, my God. They have literal like true love weights, like ceremonies where like your dad, because the man owns you, your dad would like walk you down and, you know, basically help you commit to Jesus. Gosh, it, it just sounds so archaic even saying it, you know? Um, yeah, it makes you feel, I think it makes you feel like, oh, wow, I'm choosing abstinence. But the ugly side of it is that if you don't choose abstinence, 
you're going to be looked at a certain way. You're going to be looked at as dirty. You're going to be looked at as untouchable. You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be looked down upon. And that kind of weird artifice placed over judgment, that artifice kind of placed over judgment over your sexual activity. I think the older I get, the creepier that feels. So on top of that, I had, you know, kind of formal sexual education within my Christian school. And then I had what my church taught me. And this was probably even more powerful um, than than teachings that I got from anywhere else. Because again, I was there six days a week. This was the community I wanted to please, to make happy. I was a pastor's kid, so I could not fuck things up. Whether I was attractive or not, like I'm not like I wasn't one of these like cute, beautiful pastor's kids. Like I was like an awkward, pimply, like glasses, whatever. But even so, I had to ensure my virginity and my virginal um, glow. I had to make sure I was pure at all costs because otherwise... How would that look for my parents? You know, how would that look? How would that reflect upon my dad's leadership and my mom's um, parenting skills? It was like these weirdly high stakes. But essentially, because, you know, it's like a Taiwanese Chinese church, sex was never talked about explicitly. But all that was talked about was, again, abstinence. Um, Abstinence was key. And I don't think that that word was ever used, but it was assumed. It was understood. So because it was never talked about, like from the pulpit per se, they would gather us together and put together this like mini weekend retreat that was all about sex education. And again, they would play this VHS tape. And I remember it was this white lady with like an interesting kind of like pixie-ish haircut. And she basically yelled for like four to five hours about how if you succumb to sex, uh, you were basically used goods. And I think I've shared it on the pod before, but she had this example uh, with duct tape. And basically she took duct tape and she taped it along the side of one person's arm and she ripped it off, which in hindsight, wow, very painful. And she held it up to the audience and basically showed that there were a bunch of dead skin cells. You know, she showed it up to the crowd and then she called another student up and she put the tape onto this student's arm. And of course, the tape was no longer as sticky, but it still stuck. She continued this example by the seventh or eighth person, the duct tape would just completely slide off their arm. And she equated that really with virginity. Once you give away your flower, you're no longer going to be as viable for your next partner. And if that partner isn't your husband or your wife at the end of it, then you're going to be even less viable. And as you sleep with people, you give a part of yourself away until you're almost expended. You have little value because you've desecrated yourself, essentially. And there are ways to, you know, kind of re-virginize yourself, I guess, through prayer, but it's never, it's never a real fix. Like you can, uh, you can repent And you can be forgiven, but none of those things are ever going to be forgotten. And I just remember the sheer and inherent fear that I had. And then also behind that fear was tucked this wall of judgment. And this wall of judgment was was looking at what she was saying to us. And I would look at other people around me and say, like, how the fuck would you ever let 
yourself have sex if these are the consequences. Um, It was a very, very flawed view. And it was also like fraught with double standards, which is a fun thing in the conservative evangelical church. Double standards. For example, I think a lot of that VHS tape, she would talk about how men had uncontrollable urges. They can't help it. So as females, as girls, we need to do everything we can do to help them. And this means covering yourself up. This means not not showing your wrists, your toes, et cetera, et cetera. Like it is so extreme and it does make me so mad even recounting this to you right now. Because so much was put on our shoulders for being too enticing. And it was kind of like it was kind of inferring that if women were to give into sex, then it would kind of be our fault because men were always going to be a certain way. And so it was, you know, at first it's a responsibility on the parents part to to protect their precious, like precious flowers. Um, but afterwards, it becomes like the onus is on the shoulders of the of the of the female. And I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know how that might still impact me today. Um, it made me afraid of my own sexuality. Uh my mom, anytime I'd wear something with a little cleavage, she would say, oh, oh, it's so ugly. Um, anytime I would feel like I was climbing into my womanhood and I was um, expressing myself in certain ways, it would be not just sinful, but me creating weapons which if I used, I would be tried and found guilty. And like, that, this is my body. Like, this is where I spend 100% of my time. And it was made to feel like it was a minefield. And I know we talked about in our masturbation episode where a lot of boys and men in the church, they were taught more so about refraining from masturbating. And that was kind of their huge refrain. And for us, our huge refrain was don't tempt these boys because they're essentially wolves. And if you put meat out, you can't be mad at the wolves for eating the meat. You get mad at the person that left the meat out, didn't lock it, you know, properly. And so this is like, creates a lot of confusion and a lot of fear over your own body. And I think is also directly connected to how a lot of Christian women um, may not know how to access pleasure within their own body because their sensuality, their sexuality, and their pleasure is all wrapped up in things they need to keep from men. And thusly, you kind of also keep them from yourself, which is like Roxy and I always say, the patriarchy does not serve women, nor does it serve men because it lo- it, it forces us to lock up parts of ourselves to criminalize our bodies, to be all of it, to be the judge, to be the cop and to be the criminal all in one, all within your own body. So I think as I got a little older, obviously the church was the strongest influence in my life when it came to sexuality. And I thought, fuck, I have to find a fucking, I have to like find a husband like today um, fuck, it's already like too late. I need to find a husband and hope that he hasn't slept with anybody and, and get married and, 
lock that dick down. (laughs) That was literally my number one MO. That was all that was on my mind because I was so, I was literally, I was so afraid of my own body betraying me, my own urges betraying me that I wanted to kind of get married as soon as possible, hopefully to like a worship leader who sang a lot of sad songs um, and, you know, immediately get married and start serving him and having babies for him. The the babies were kind of inferred because sex equals babies, you know? Um, But it's just so damaging because it was so black and white. It was so black and white and any positive views of sex were always framed within marriage. So it meant that there was only one good type of sex and that was within marriage. And even within that kind of sex, there was no conversations around pleasure. There was no conversations about consent. There was no, you basically, if you got married really young in the church, you had no toolkit for how to talk about it. At least not from my church. You had no toolkit of how to talk about sex within marriage. Um, Other than that, it was blessed by God. So it was all good. And a lot of the teachings in my church were that women were meant to be submissive to men. Um, And, and, you know, different churches have different interpretations of that verse. But, you know, I went to a church where women who, if they wanted to serve or lead, they had to cover their heads. Like it was conservative to that point. So women being submissive to men without any explicit definition of that, we all had like a very clear interpretation of it in our minds. And I was recently listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hills. And within it, the, you know, they kind of talk about this pastor who became really power hungry and kind of um, just really had no accountability. And he has sermons and sermons and sermons of, of what a, a wife owes her husband, of what being a submissive wife kind of actually looks like. Um, there were discussing examples like when a man goes out and works really hard and like earns for the family and works for God's kingdom. When he comes home, you should have beer and a plate of wings ready for him in his recliner and basically a blowjob, just a full on mouth, lips glossed, tongue wet, ready to go blowjob as he eats his salty wings and beer. And I, I felt when I heard that, I felt like throwing up and I also felt that it was so extreme until I really breadcrumbed it and realized that's like the same rhetoric that I grew up with. That's like the same logical conclusion to what I was taught growing up. And I'm not, I'm not blaming anyone at my church. I'm not, I'm really not trying to point fingers. I'm just saying like, I don't know that any of this was thought through enough. And I think, like I said earlier, like if you're not being honest and if you're not being comprehensive, then you can take this logic down to very dark roads. So as I got older, as I entered high school, I started, um, I started buying Cosmo magazines and hiding them under my mattress. And so I basically had two sources of sex education. I had church and I had Cosmo. Um, when I got a little bit older, you know, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I, I never watched porn. It was so demonized within my household, within church. It was so demonized that I, I wouldn't even want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. Like, like we were the, you know, up until I was in college, like if someone kissed on screen, unless they were married, my parents would have us close our eyes, obviously became very performative after a certain age, but Cosmo church, those were, you know, those were my only 
access points for sex. Um, and later it was supplemented by romance novels and I got a blockbuster kind of unlimited subscription. So I would secretly rent DVDs, um, and watch them on my own time. And yeah, I didn't watch porn, but I definitely skipped to the sex scenes and that was my sexual education watching Hollywood actresses, you know, orgasm after three pumps. And then the man would orgasm right after and they would, you know, fall onto each other in kind of heaps of, of sweat and heavy breathing. And that was sex. Cosmo, 35 ways to please your man, 67 ways to give a better hand job. Um, you know, all these like, again, very like male gazy aspects of sex, but it was so polar opposite from when I was learning in church that I felt like my brain was literally split in two. And I, I didn't know how to navigate that except to kind of split myself into a Madonna whore complex mentally. I never did anything externally, but all of it was just happening in my mind. And it was really, it was really confusing and it was really I felt really alone. I think that's the key. Um, I felt really alone and really isolated in it because I couldn't talk to any of my church friends about it. And all of my friends in high school were overtly sexual. And I felt uncomfortable with that as well. So I felt this kind of I I was occupying this weird liminal space um, where I I myself believed that sex was wrong, but also I myself felt sexual urges just like any 14, 15, 16 year old does. Any human does really, but you know, that's like the, the onset of it. So it was very, very isolating. And I don't think I had any good answer to it. I didn't have any concrete path through it other than I knew that I wanted to stay a virgin until marriage. And I was excited to try out all these Cosmo instruction manuals for blowjobs and handjobs and, and, uh, sex positions. So it was still, even though I was opening myself up to different types of sexual literacy, um, I still framed sex within the confines of marriage or within the boundaries of marriage, depending on how you want to look at it, you know? So then I go to college. Um, and in college I, I was really liberated in a certain way because I finally left my home church and I didn't technically leave it, but I was finally exposed to different facets of Christianity. Um, I joined this group called the edge, which was the college group at this church called new song in Irvine. And I, I, I honestly, I loved, I loved every minute of it because it helped me to explore my understanding of what my parents church had taught me and to really wrestle with, with what I had been taught and come to different conclusions, to explore different theological things, to explore people with different backgrounds. Um, it really gave me the freedom to do that. But it was still within a very religious context. So a lot of my college experience was very, very Christian. I quickly became like an assistant small group leader and then later a small group leader and then later a worship leader. I never drank. I never had any men really interested in me, (laughs) but I had major crushes on people. I I was boy crazy um, and I was finally in these small groups where you know, because we were in college, girls were opening up about their sex lives, about, you know, about their sexual desires, about their urges. But it was heavily coded with this Christian vernacular that made it so that having a crush was fine, that having a boy come to you and say, 
God told me that we should be together. So you should pray about it was fine. But actually engaging in any type of of physical sexual activity was strictly forbidden. And if you did it, the only way was to prostrate yourself in front of the Lord and like be repentant and feel guilty. And I just my heart goes to these women now because there were so many small groups. There were so many small group sessions where one girl would just break down crying because maybe she gave her boyfriend a blowjob in high school and she's just never lived it down. Maybe she gave into sex on prom night and then he broke up with her and she's just felt unclean ever since. Um, maybe her boyfriend slept in her room last Friday night. Um, and they were tempted, you know, and they would just literally be sobbing and heartbroken. And, and again, like their own body was criminalized. Their own body betrayed them. Um, and it was somehow their fault. And even if the guys had pressured them, even if the guys had, you know, been the one to kind of really initiate it, it didn't matter because they were still somehow mostly at fault. I think this was really heartbreaking and kind of the beginnings of mine, uh, of my mind saying, hold up, something's not quite right here. Um, I'm a little, I'm a little confused and I'm a little doubtful, but I'm also very afraid of sex because it's this awful demonized thing. Um, but something's not quite matching up here. And I personally, at that point, had never been really one-on-one -on -one with a guy um, or a girl for that matter, but I just hadn't been one-on-one -on -one with somebody in any kind of sexual context. And so it was difficult for me to not feel, honestly, one, I felt this understanding that to keep them accountable, I had to be a good judge and, and, and to, to kind of call them out on what they'd done. And I also felt, to be totally honest, a little bit jealous Cause fuck, they do some shit I didn't know. And, and they obviously were, um, attracting men sexually. Like I felt this weird jealousy, God, so mixed up, so tangled up, so gross. But I also began to feel like, okay, something's not quite right here. And so when I left college, as I've talked on the pod before, my, my grandmother passed away and it really threw me for a loop and it wasn't the only thing, but it was the thing that really kickstarted um, my journey of leaving the church. And I won't go too much into that today, but it definitely started making me question, do I really want to stay a virgin? Is being a virgin really important to me? What's actually important in life? All these things I've been preoccupied about, of being holy, of being pure, of being all these things, like, is that everything that this life has to offer? Um do I need to keep waiting around for God's approval for every little thing? I realized a lot of my walls were beginning to come down. And I started allowing myself to explore my own desires. And I think this included, you know, learning to masturbate and learning to find pleasure in my own body, um, learning to understand what my sexual appetites were, were, I started, this is, you know, after college, going out with people from different backgrounds, but a lot of them happened to be worship leaders because like I said, like that's who I thought I was going to end up with. But I still really struggled. I still really didn't know um, how sex could be included in my life. Because I think in my mind, it was either you're a virgin till you're married 
or you sleep around a lot, which is totally great. But it was just something that I wasn't personally comfortable with yet. And so again, because I only had the black and the white, living in the gray was almost unnavigable because I had no idea how to construct a life outside of the gravity of religion. So a couple years into this, um, I met my my ex-boyfriend and um, yeah, he was actually the first person I ever kissed. And I remember at the time having to tell people that I hadn't been kissed was really nerve wracking because I was both proud of it, but then also knew that I think for some people that I potentially wanted to date, it seemed like too much pressure to, to match up to. Um, it seemed like, oh, maybe she's a little too prudish. However you slice it, 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 was a, it was a status that I was very uncomfortable with. And I think part of me just wanted to get it over with, but I was also super afraid. Um, yeah, I'm a very anxious, <laughs> fearful person, if you couldn't tell already. But I, I met this guy and for a church guy, he was much more, I think, sexually open and he had been more sexually promiscuous. Um, and I just remember feeling like he would never judge me. If anything, I would judge us if we went too far. I was the one who would put the brakes on or freak out, but within our relationship, I was able to explore my sexuality and sometimes those were pushed to certain limits. But if I'm being completely honest, it was a, it was a huge relief because I think it had just been building up for so long of this thing that you should be really afraid of, of this monster. And then I think once you kind of go through that, you realize it's such a human experience. It's just two humans doing things two humans do. It's not that different or outside the realm of things I already understood. And I do remember that night that I first had sex. And again, I don't want to say lost my virginity because if you go back and listen to our virginity episode, virginity is a myth. Um, but I remember we had sex and the next morning I... I remember the sun coming up and kind of moving around the room. And I remember gathering my things and sneaking out of the house and getting in my car and driving and bracing myself. Like, was I going to be different? Was I going to feel this crushing weight of guilt and shame that I had seen in a lot of my peers? Was I going to hate myself? Was I going to get so attached that nothing in my life would ever be the same again? When I got home and I remember looking at myself in the mirror and I was just staring at myself, looking for evidence that someone else might see on me, looking for proof. And I didn't see anything. I was just me. And I'm not saying it wasn't a special moment in my life, and I'm not saying it wasn't notable, but it also wasn't this giant, earth-shattering event 
in my life either. It was something that happened and something I consented to and enjoyed. And I don't, I don't necessarily feel had any true moral implications, at least not in my experience. But of course, that was in that moment. I felt this liberation and I felt free and I felt open. But after it definitely set in that I was afraid that I was used goods. That even if I was okay with myself, if I wanted to marry someone, I would be too dirty for a nice Christian boy and not not open enough for a non-Christian person. Because again, I still looked at the world through that binary of secular and non-secular, Christian, non-Christian. And that was hard because I, I didn't know where I belonged anymore. And again, it coincided with me leaving the church, which because everything in my life had been tied up into that church logic, that church gravity, I was in complete free fall. There was no up, there was no down, there was no here, there was no there. I was completely shapeless and formless and honestly made for a very shitty friend and a shitty daughter because I had no internal code. I had no direction. I had no impetus. I had no moral you know, standards anymore. They were all undone completely. And it took a really long time for me to reset that, to find things for my own, to see what I felt was right and what I felt was wrong and what I thought was good and I thought was bad because the church had always defined that for me. The only thing to look to was the Bible the only people to ask were leaders in the church. And I didn't have that infrastructure set for me anywhere else. And so I had to find it or build it. And so I'm really happy with how far I've come. I'm proud of the person I am today. Um, and I think maybe in a future episode, I can share a little bit more about what happened from there. But it's been quite a journey. And if you're a Christian and you're a virgin, I'm really happy for you because I know how important that is. And if you're someone who saved yourself till marriage and, and you love that, I'm, I'm really happy for you. It just wasn't quite right for me. And it just isn't something I think should be the only option for people in the church and for people in general. I think the lack of context and the lack of focus on consent of pleasure, of exploration, of openness is a travesty. I think the lack of that is a travesty because it makes for not only less enjoyable sexual encounters, even within a marriage, but less enjoyable and less open conversation outside of a sexual context. And it's something with far-reaching arms and it affects me to this day. And I don't think I have a very pretty bow to put on the end of this. Although all I can say is I'm doing a lot better today. And 
I'm really happy that I went through what I went through because it made me who I am today. And I know that sounds cliche, but for this topic, I truly, 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 truly feel grateful that I went through this sexual awakening. So thanks for listening to me talk about this. If you have thoughts or questions or disagreements, please email us at hello at twohornygoats.com. Thanks for making my first solo episode so nice. You were very gentle with me and I appreciate it. Um, but now before we go, I think it's time for... Okay, so kind of within the thematics of today's episode, I did want to recommend a documentary that I watched recently. Um, it's called Jimmy Savile, A British Horror Story. And it is about a British broadcaster. He was basically like a Regis Philbin or Ryan Seacrest for, you know, the UK. Um, well known on, on air for over 50 years. And this documentary kind of uncovers what was really going on. He was kind of living this double life. I don't want to give too much away, but it really indicates kind of like I talked about with the rise and fall of Mars Hills, what absolute power can do to somebody, what living above reproach can do to somebody. Um, so yeah, check that out. It is on Netflix. My second unsolicited pick is Bar Maruno in Silver Lake. I went there with my friend, Kevin Fong. What's up, Kevin? And we had a cute little friend date there and they, it's basically, it's like a tapas bar. Um, they've got great food. Um, they've got these little like imported tuna tins from Spain, I think, and, um, nice crusty bread and fire roasted tomatoes on their fire, um, you know, fire grill. And also on top of that, I've been drinking almost exclusively gin martinis, and they have an entire cocktail menu devoted to gin martinis. One of them has this smoked salmon gin martini, which I was like, wait, what the fuck? What does that mean? But I guess they 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 take Tanqueray and they actually put smoked salmon in there. And what happens is the um, fat isn't soluble in the in the in the water side of it, but it will get into the alcohol side of it. So Tanqueray has a pretty high, a, a pretty high ABV. And so it actually infuses into the alcohol and adds this like crazy mouthfeel. That's insane. Um, so definitely go if you like gin martinis, if you like tapas, if you like cute little dates, check out Bar Maruno. It's brand new. It's in Silver Lake. Again, thanks for listening to me talk about my sexual education. I, I definitely feel really vulnerable, but also held because I know I know each and every one of us are holding space for each other. And what I love about this podcast is it's so different from how I grew up. Um, there's no ni nice, neat bow that needs to be tied at the end. There's no fire and brimstone. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's just where we are and who we are. And we can approach each other in our most authentic state. And even though, sure, my most authentic state is often not very pretty. Um, most times it's not actively not very nice looking, but there's a truth here to humanity. And the more authentically we can show up to and with one another, the more authentically we can see humanity and the more authentically we can see ourselves. So on that note, I love each and every one of you goatees. Have a horny week. And remember... Stay horny. Ow! How do you feel about it? That's what I thought.
goatees here at the very end. I'm just going to ask um, that if you enjoyed this episode, if you're enjoying these episodes at all, and you have it within your financial budget, please consider giving to twohornygoats.com. This is a self-funded project. We love doing what we do, but there are a lot of overhead expenses like website hosting, uh, podcast hosting, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we have a lot of fun things in store for you. So if you can, even if it's $5 or $10, Head to twohornygoats.com and hit the donate button. Okay, I love you. Goodbye. This podcast is hosted by Roxy and Priska. Music by Abraham Kim. Incidental music provided by Dan, a.k.a. Dan. Artwork by Connie Yen. Please visit us at twohornygoats.com. Have thoughts or questions for us? Email us at hello at twohornygoats.com.